from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like good. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Friday, July 10th. I know the date. No, I don't. I had to remind myself today. It's Friday. We made it to the end of the week. But, you know, if you've lost count of the days, that's okay. I'm right there with you. Big announcement yesterday in college football, the Big Ten saying that it will go to a conference-only season for all fall fall sports, including football. It does have a direct impact on the Pac-12 because some big games, marquee games, that will no longer be on the schedule, including UW-Michigan. We'll discuss the impacts of that, how it might affect other Power 5 conferences, including the Pac-12. Yogi Roth joining the station yesterday with some thoughts as well. Also, you can hear live baseball today. Not messing with you. The Mariners inter-squad game, the very first one of summer camp, kicks off right here live on 710 ESPN Seattle today at 2.30 p.m. Hear Rick Riz, Aaron Goldsmith, your favorite voices coming through the airwaves with a little baseball. And it'll look a little different. We'll hear from Scott Service on what that might actually look like today and how they are planning for that. Also, plenty ahead in this hour, Brady Henderson of ESPN uh, joining the station to talk about Josh Gordon versus Antonio Brown and their skill sets. And speaking of wide receivers, we'll hear from DK Metcalf as well. All ahead in this hour. Right now, let's get to your headlines. Big impact for college football yesterday. The Big Ten announcing it will go to a conference-only season for all fall sports, but including football amid the coronavirus pandemic. In the statement that they put out, the Big Ten said, quote, we are facing uncertain and unprecedented times and the health, safety, and wellness of our student-athletes, coaches, game officials, and others associated with our sports programs and campuses remain our number one priority. By limiting competition to other Big Ten institutions, the conference will have the greatest flexibility to adjust its own operations throughout the season and make quick decisions in real time based on the most current evolving medical advice and the fluid nature of the pandemic. The Big Ten is the first of the five, the Power Five conferences to make this type of a major change to its fall sports. SEC on Thursday said that it will continue to meet with campus leaders to understand what the best path forward is for them. SEC officials also expected uh, to meet with athletic directors and early next week, uh, but no plans to make any decisions on the fall schedule, according to the ESPN report. Big 12 commissioner, meanwhile, Bob Bowlesby, said in a statement that he has been advised to move ahead slowly and plan for all available scenarios. So a lot of question marks still up in the air. Meanwhile, the ACC has already said it would delay all fall sports until at least September 1st. Uh, The Ivy League on Wednesday announced and ruled out playing all sports this fall. We heard from Robin Harris, executive director of the Ivy League, earlier this week. But uh, some sound I didn't get to play for you on if other D1 conferences were involved in that decision. I'm connected with the Division I commissioners. We meet regularly. We've been meeting a couple of times a week by Zoom and exchange information and, and meet with the NCAA. And, but there, throughout that process is a recognition that each conference is going to make decisions based on what's right for that conference. 
obviously the economic model for the Ivy League a lot different than many other schools that rely on that revenue generated by college football that hand out athletic scholarships. But Heather Dinich, ESPN's college football reporter on how that Ivy League decision might impact other conferences. Multiple commissioners and athletic directors told me that they would be watching it very closely, and they did. But Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby reminded that the Ivy League is a very different set of circumstances, not only just with locations, but also finances. So at the end of the day, many Power 5 commissioners and athletic directors told me that the end of July is their tentative target date to make any major decisions as to whether or not college football can start on time at the highest levels. But I will tell you, I talked to Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick just minutes ago, and he told me that he thinks it is less likely there's an on-time start now as he did think two weeks ago. Nicole Auerbach, who writes for The Athletic, also saying the Big Ten is trying to buy some time right now because so many things are still unknown. This is not unique to this industry, to college football. I think, you know, everyone's trying to buy themselves time right now. You know, the Ivy League bought themselves six months to figure this out if they want to try to bring back fall sports in the spring. Um, And then you had, you know, the ACC made a decision earlier in today about their Olympic sports. And no games or scrimmages in August that buys yourself a couple extra weeks. And I think that this is the same type of thing. It allows the big 10 flexibility because it's easier to adjust things. If you're talking about conference, conference members. So you're all, you know, coming from um, something with, you know, the same standards and testing and protocol from a health and safety standpoint, you know, you've got your own networks. You've got like the areas of, of, of what you can do and what you might need to change are a lot easier when you are just talking about conference opponents, you have less outside variables. As for specific schools, we heard from Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith said yesterday that he would be in favor of playing those 10 conference football games and supported that idea. Uh, He said if they're able to play in September, but something happens later in this month, uh, later um, September or October, uh, they can hit the pause button. They have some flexibility there. But he did admit that he is also very concerned about fall sports. I am very concerned. I think in our last conversation, I was you know, cautiously optimistic. You know, I'm not even there now. So I am concerned that we may not be able to play, uh, which is why we took the measure that we took in order to try and have September available to us for conference games and, and give us the flexibility and control to handle disruptions uh, if we're able to start a season. We uh, just didn't respond to our opportunities uh, that were provided to us. People need to, to follow the protocols and give our kids a chance to, to compete. Some big questions uh, that still need to be answered. Reese Davis, ESPN at College Game Day host. How do you approach it if some schools want to play while others don't? To me, I think that needs to be an individual institutional decision. And if there are schools that feel comfortable playing within a conference and others that do not, well, then some just don't play. And, you know, if they think that's the right thing to do for their institution and their program and their players, then that's what they should do. And, you know, I know that they would like to move together. They would like to move together with great unity with all of the conferences. Uh, But short of that, if they get down to a situation where, you know, 12 SEC schools feel like they can play and two can't and, you know, 10 ACC schools feel that they can and and four can't, uh, you know, then – I'm sort of of the opinion if it is safe and wise and judicious 
uh, to let the ones that want to play play, and those that don't feel that it's the right thing for their institution or their area of the country, then then don't. What about that idea of spring football? We had heard floated, well, Heather Dinich saying that it really hasn't gained any traction. I don't believe it's gaining any more traction. Everybody that I've spoken with from conference commissioners to athletic directors has said, look, it's not our first option. It's not our second option. It's certainly doable, but there are so many problems with it that would have to be ironed out. I mean, I talked about the NFL draft, a concern there with the overlap, plus the the possibility that big name players wouldn't play because of that. And then if you do have a spring season, that's March, April, May, you're talking about training um, in January. January, February. And the reality of the situation is people are saying to me, look, we don't know this is going to be any better then than it is now. So there are a lot of concerns with that, but they are saying at some point we might have to dust it off. And Reese Davis also bringing up the point that even the the doable part of that uh, is a big question mark that he has doubts that spring football would even work. In terms of playing in the spring, you just don't have any guarantee yet that it's going to be better then. But if it's viable at all and can mitigate some of the uh, financial losses that would incur if they weren't able to play in the fall, then certainly I think they would try to give it a a spin in in some fashion to do it in the spring. Uh, How feasible it is, I have my doubts about that because of a number of things. One, uh, the most obvious uh, is the proximity to the draft. But I think even more important than that is the number, if you tried to play it in spring, the number of games that you would have in a short period of time, because one would assume if you can play a season in any form in the spring, then you would be able to play in the following fall. That's a lot of games in a short period of time. Yogi Roth, uh, Pac-12, you could see him all over also uh, writing that book with Pete Carroll, along with Pete Carroll, uh, Win Forever. But he has some unique perspective on both Pete and the Pac-12. He said there will be some cool aspects of moving the college football season to spring. I'm going to play you that next, but also his opinion on Jamal Adams, his take on Pete Carroll as a coach, as he was compared recently to Kyle Shanahan in the media by Richard Sherman. So we'll hear from him as well as Jake Heaps, who had some news on Jamal Adams and the Seahawks' pursuit of him. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you. Friday, July 10th. Thanks for hanging out this morning bright and early. Jamal Adams requested a trade out of New York. Unhappy with how contract negotiations were going. Somewhat of a a common story in the last couple of years in football, but one of the teams on his request list, because he outlined um, some specifics, was the Seattle Seahawks. Now is the interest there on the other side. Yesterday, our own Jake Heaps with a little news on that front. I actually had a conversation with um, a friend of mine who works in a front office um, on the other side of the country for an NFL team, and we were talking, and, and he he actually said, so your Seahawks are really into Jamal Adams. And I was like, excuse, like, wh- excuse what do you mean me? by that? Right? Yeah, like, what? oh, okay, I'm interested. Wait. I'm, inter- I'm interested. <laughs> and and they're, they're another team that's interested in Jamal Adams. And he said, yeah, the Seahawks are absolutely pursuing the Seahawks. Or the Seahawks are absolutely pursuing Jamal Adams uh, in, in this situation. 
A little news that might be good news for a couple of Seahawks fans wanting to add to that secondary. Jake Heaps uh, with more on that story. No, the thing that is interesting about that and, and talking um, with with this source is, you know, asking him about, okay, well, what is Jamal Adams asking for, right? What does he want ultimately? And to me, Jamal Adams is in a Quentin Dunbar situation. He either wants a new deal that is going to match his talent with the New York Jets or he wants to be traded to a very good team. So if you talk about it from that standpoint, guys, I'm all in on Jamal Adams. Also with some thoughts on where he could elevate this defense. I think that that could be a really dynamic uh, trade and a big boost for the Seahawks that could uh, really make that defense and that defensive backfield back to that Legion of Boom uh, you know, type of status again because Jamal Adams, as much as we reminisce about Cam Chancellor, Jamal Adams is a generational talent at that position and plays very similarly to Cam. Pac-12 host Yogi Roth joining a station yesterday, and he said that he's only ever heard great things about I don't him. track it enough to know like what's real and what's not in the NFL and signings, but I do know when I talk to players on the Jets about him, and I remember him coming out of college I never heard one bad thing in terms of like, what a baller, what a guy. Um, I bet, you know, if they got somebody like that, man, what a cornerstone of that defense. Yogi with some unique perspective on Pete Carroll as well and the safety position. How important is it to Pete? Well, I'll say this. You go out to any practice or any pregame and Pete's still doing it at his age. He's backpedaling as the safeties are doing seven on seven. You know, he's driving on the ball. And I think all coaches see the game through the lens of which they played right, and the position of which they played. And Pete, he would kind of probably half joke, but be like, yeah, man, I could still play. I could play safety. You know, I, I joke with him all the time. when I say, like, dude, I think I could play slot receiver. And I really arrogantly think that, right, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but you think you can do like a couple snaps. Um, and I bet he feels the same way about himself at that position. And you think about the position, you know, I just go back to SC. Troy Palomalo, Darnell Bain, Taylor Mays, right? Then you go to Seattle and obviously have had dramatic success there. You reference Cam, Earl Thomas. Yeah, it's a, it's a big part, right? Also, Yogi, with some thoughts on Pete in general and doesn't buy into the theory that Carroll isn't adaptable or versatile. Well, I don't think he's going to be air raid, you know, by any stretch. But think about, like, if you go back in time just with Seattle, I mean, there was a time where they were spreading up tempo, right? If you go back, I want to say it was like second or third year. You know, like there's been times when they've just been downhill. There's been times when they spread you out. I remember when they implemented a lot of the spread run game. So I think to the naked eye, maybe it's not like, oh, my God, he, he only does what he does and he's done it for 40 years. But if you get in the building or, to me, um, you know, really study that, he's, he's been extremely versatile, to be quite honest with you. Also, on the other side of the ball, the offense, DK Metcalf making a little drop by a surprise performance uh, appearance on Tom, Jake, and Stacy yesterday. And he said that he's ready for the season. I'm feeling very good right now. Uh, I've learned a lot from, uh, you know, Greg, Phillip, Tyler, you know, a lot of veterans on the team just been trying to pick their brain. But um, a message to the fans, man, I can't wait to get back out there. Uh, if y'all are in the stadium or not, man, we know y'all going to support us. But, um, yeah, I just feel bad for whoever got to guard us this year. How about those Antonio Brown rumors? 
DK, with a simple thought on that. Yeah, whatever happens, you know, whoever's on the team when we start training camp, it's, it's going to be a good year. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. And this offense and this explosive offense that we have, whoever lines up is going to be explosive. Well, speaking of that wide receiver room, up next on the Blitz, ESPN's Brady Henderson with some thoughts on Josh Gordon or Antonio Brown. Who is more likely to be a Seahawk? It's next, right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is the Blitz. Welcome back to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you. Happy Friday. July 10th, we made it. We'll have baseball on our radios later today, 2.30 p.m. Right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. The Mariners kicking off with their first intra-squad game. What will those look like? We'll hear from Scott Service on the mechanics of them a little later in this hour. Also, how do they feel about the runner on second in extras rule and what strategy planning will go into that? But up first, Brady Henderson of ESPN joining 710 yesterday to chat about the possibility of Jamal Adams coming to Seattle. Plus, with some thoughts on Antonio Brown versus Josh Gordon, who is more likely to be a Seahawk? Uh, As I said, I was speaking with Brady Henderson last night about a couple of different things concerning the Seahawks, but I'm really interested in what's going on with Antonio Brown and how interested the Seahawks actually are and what kinds of concerns they may have about signing him or being interested in him at all, right? I mean... I'll let Brady explain it, but uh, Brady, first of all, it's good to have you on here. What types of things, and I'm not talking about the commissioner handing down a suspension um, necessarily, but if the Seahawks are interested in Antonio Brown, what types of concerns might they have and what types of things might they be vetting? Yeah, well, I mean, there is interest there, and and just like they have interest in a lot of players, and uh, from what I understand, you know, they have the, the interest that they've shown in him so far uh, has really been due diligence, which you know, they, they do with a lot of players. And I think, you know, there is, from what I understand, a lot to be, and from what anybody could tell just by looking at his situation, you know, there is a lot to be sorted out uh, with him, um, you know, before anything happens there. And that, that's, that's what I heard. And I took that to mean um, that I, I would imagine that means that, you know, the allegations of sexual assault. Uh, are, are the big thing there. And, you know, there's been so much with that point over the last, um, you know, 10 months or so that it, uh, I guess it's kind of easy to, to forget individual incidents. And there is a, a very serious one uh, that he's dealing with right now, which is uh, allegations of, of sexual assault uh, against his former uh, trainer, Brittany Taylor, uh, which came out, I believe, in September, right after he signed with the Patriots. So um, when I hear that a lot has to be sorted out in his life, I take that to mean that that situation has to be uh, resolved. And I just cannot imagine the Seahawks uh, signing him with that, you know, with that issue still hanging out there like it is right now. So just going back a few years, and every case is different. We're not talking about the exact same charges or even allegations. But going back to somebody like Frank Clark from five years ago, does that in any way affect their decision making now? All the, I guess, the backlash that they dealt with then. Uh, yeah, I think it does, Tom, because there was there was backlash, and for, for people who don't remember that, um, you know, they drafted Frank Clark in the second round, and he had been accused of uh, domestic violence. I believe that it later got uh, pleaded down to disorderly conduct or, or some sort of lesser charge like that, and. Um, you know, there was a lot of backlash, both publicly but also internally, when they dropped it. 
I have really gotten the sense uh, since then that, that that is a road that they are, are a lot more um, you know wary of going down, and they have been a lot more cautious with anybody tied to that. And so, um, you know, I think with Antonio Brown, you could maybe live with you know, the, the frozen feet. You can live with the fiasco, maybe. Um, you can live with some of that other stuff of just being kind of a pain in the rear. But for an organization like this, I just have a hard time imagining them being able to live with something like this unless it's, um, you know, unless it's resolved, unless, you know, maybe the allegations turn out to be not true. Maybe the, um, you know, the accuser um, recants what she said. I don't know what that looks like or what that would have to be. I just, it's really hard for me to imagine um, them wanting to go down that road again. Obviously, it's, as you said, different situations and whatnot, but um, I just have really gotten the sense that they have, have taken a, a very cautious approach ever since what happened with Frank Clark. Uh, Brady, it is interesting, the, the point that you point out, and obviously that's the reason why Antonio Brown has not been signed by anybody uh, up to this point. Um, the Seahawks continue to be interested and continue to uh, vet the situation what if it was a situation like Michael Kendricks, for example, that the legal situation that is there is still ongoing, um, but there isn't a, a timeline of when that is when that decision is going to be made, or that timeline seems to be further out than the than the season's end? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, and that brings in. Uh... Um, you know, that raises the question of just the timing of this, and nobody really knows the timing just because it's um, it's not only the legal system that has to play out, but also the NFL could come in and, you know, as they did with Jaron Reed last summer, um, you know, suspend him even though he was not even um, charged or arrested. Uh, for instance, that happened in, I think it was April of 2017, so you're talking about not only was he not charged or arrested, but that was two years after the fact that the NFL came over uh, and handed out its own discipline, so uh, there's a timing issue. There's an NFL issue here. Uh, I think what would be what stands out is different to me about the Kendricks situation than, than Brown's situation is that you know Kendricks was he, he admitted you know he took full responsibility uh, for what he did and he admitted it and um, you know that was so I think there's there was an element of you know believing that the guy deserved a second chance um, and I don't know if you could really say that with Antonio Brown at least in, in this instance because. Um, I don't believe that he is, he is, you know, admitting guilt. I, think, I believe that he is fighting these allegations. So those situations seem a little bit different to me just in that regard. Now, Brady, you know, we talk about uh, different additions that could potentially happen to the team, and you know, Antonio Brown, Josh Gordon, um, you look at Jadevian Clowney. All these things are just kind of on the periphery here. Uh, and I, I just learned uh, not that long ago that you know Jamal Adams is somebody that is is on the table and in discussions. You know, which of those guys do you see being the most likely candidate for the Seahawks to be able to uh, bring aboard to their to their team? Yeah, can you give me the names again, Jake? It was it was Clowney, Jamal Adams, and who else? Clowney, Jamal Adams, Antonio Brown, and Josh Gordon. Yeah, well, J- Josh Gordon is an interesting one just because I know that they are interested in him as well, and, and he is definitely interested in them. Uh, I've talked to people close to him who have told me that, that he really loved playing in Seattle. He really uh, has an admiration for Russell Wilson. He's kept his, you know, he's stayed uh, living in Seattle, um, and that's part of the reason why. And, you know, I think the difference, big difference between him and Antonio Brown is, um, 
you know, one is that they, they know what he what they know what Josh Gordon was like in that locker room. And by all accounts, from everything I've heard, um, he was just a, a pleasure to be around. He was not an issue. He came in, he got his work done, he got along with people. He was not disruptive in any way. And the risk that you would take on with somebody like Josh Gordon is that, um, you know, if God, you know, God forbid, he had another relapse he would be gone, and that would be similar from the team standpoint, from an availability standpoint, as a guy getting injured, you know, whereas the downside with Antonio Brown um, is that he, he, you know, continues to be a pain in the rear like he has been in other places, and he ends up being a disruptive figure in the locker room and whatnot. So um, I, I, I think I said on your show last week, but week before, that it's between those two, Josh Gordon and Antonio Brown, I think that Gordon is more likely. Obviously, he doesn't have the upside. Uh, of somebody like Antonio Brown, who's you know, still one of the best receivers in the NFL, uh, but maybe the downside would not be as great. That was ESPN's Brady Henderson yesterday on Tom, Jake, and Stacy. That full interview available online, 710sports.com. Also, uh, live baseball later today on 710 ESPN Seattle. Can you tell I'm excited? I've only told you about it a few times. 2.30 p.m. right here, Rick Riz, Aaron Goldsmith, the Mariners' first inter-squad game. But John Morosi of MLB Network joining Bob David Moore yesterday to talk about how he would feel uh, as the Mariners right now. John Morosi is here. John, how are you, man? Bob, Dave, and Jim, I am doing well. Uh, I guess two weeks from today, my friends. Opening day 2020. It's been quite a journey to get here. Hope all of you and your families are doing well. Yeah, you you as well. And uh, we've, we've actually got an intra-squad game that will be airing on our station tomorrow. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm, that's, how, that's how much I'm craving baseball, John. Just intra-squad Mariner baseball. But... Uh, what, what does this do this season, do you think, in terms of development for young guys? We played a cut from Jerry DePoto earlier talking about, you know, some of the young guys that may have been called up later in the season, in a regular season, you may not see them. And, and I'm wondering just across the board, you know, every other city has guys they're looking forward to seeing. What do you think this does to their development? Well, that's a great question. And I think it's one of the key things that's going on right now in the game is how do you best develop your young players, especially for a team like the Mariners with so many players in their early to mid-20s that are really going to determine the future of the organization in the not-too-distant future because this this really is going to be the core of players uh, going forward. Of course, you have the likes of Evan White already there, Kyle Lewis already there, kind of in their early to mid-20s, and then the group that's coming behind them. I, I, I think that we may see some players still get up to the major leagues uh, this year, maybe, uh, maybe in a surprising fashion if, if a team is contending ahead of schedule uh, or if an injury occurs. So I don't necessarily think that we can be 100% sure that someone like a Jared Kelnick wouldn't necessarily come up during the course of the year. It may be a surprise if it happens this year, but I still think it's possible. Uh, and I also think, too, that I, I would feel comfortable being a team like the Mariners right now because there's a lot of competition, there's a lot of young players, and, and the current generation of players around the game are so disciplined and so focused that I think that a young team like the Mariners will do a good job of handling uh, themselves at the ballpark and just as importantly and more importantly away from the ballpark. And I think it's going to keep a real hunger around this team for a while because the players on the club now and those who are about to, to break through, they realize that this is a very precious time to make an impression on Jerry DePoto and Scott Service and the whole hierarchy of the team. I think you're going to see a very, very heavily focused team here in 2020. 
Good to hear from John Morosi, as always. And that full interview is available for you at 710sports.com. Well, speaking of those M's, we'll hear from Scott Service up next in the hot list on what the intra-squad games will look like. Some of the mechanics of them kicking off at 2.30 p.m. today. It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 6.45. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! Yesterday, Major League Baseball uh, released its schedule for 2021 and will open the 2021 season on April 1st. Every team is scheduled to play its first game on the same day for the first time since 1968. It's been a hot minute. The league released the full schedule two weeks before it plans to begin the truncated 2020 season. John Morosi of MLB Network yesterday on 710 on why MLB decided to release 2021 schedule already. It was a little surprising. I think maybe the, the one thing is to, is to sort of maybe put down those, those dates and those marks of, okay, here's what we expect will be our, our product for the next year and a half. Of course, next year is the last one before the CBA expires. Maybe that has something to do with it to show what the plans are going forward to the union from that purpose. That might be what one of the reasons was. But uh, I, I was similarly, Jim, surprised just as I was, uh, uh, looking at the overall situation. We're, we're two weeks away from, from a season that we're not even entirely sure uh, we'll be able to be safely played through its completion of 60 games, uh, that maybe that certainly is still the focus uh, in, in many ways. Some highlights from next year's schedule. Well, the New York Mets will host their crosstown rivals, the Yankees, at City Field on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the first time the Subway Series will take place on September 11th. The Yankees will host the Mets during 4th of July weekend, and Atlanta will host the 91st All-Star Game on July 13th at Truist Park. It's Atlanta's first All-Star Game since hosting back in 2000 at Turner Field. The last day of the regular season next year, uh, this is again, if all things go according to plan, will be October 3rd. In the aftermath of some comments made by veteran umpire Joe West, the Major League Baseball Umpires Association issued a statement yesterday saying that recent public comments do not reflect its stance regarding the coronavirus pandemic. 67-year-old West said he doesn't believe the death total being attributed to the coronavirus, which has surpassed 130,000 in the United States. Uh, And he... I won't even read the comments, but the MLBUA statement says the union fully supports the safety protocols agreed to by Major League Baseball and the MLBPA. And that, quote, regardless of any umpire's personal views, when we report for resume spring training in 2020 season, we will conduct ourselves as professionals and in accordance with the health and safety protocol. West was found to be at at high risk for COVID-19 by MLB, was offered full pay and service time to opt out of this season, but he was told, or he has told MLB Deputy Commissioner Don Halem that he will return to work during the shortened 60-game season. Well, we've heard a lot of, you know, bad headlines lately uh, or depressing headlines lately. Cincinnati, but here's a good one. Cincinnati Bengals rookie quarterback Joe Burrow, he's partnered with local organizations in Southeast Ohio to create a hunger relief fund named in his honor. On Thursday, the Athens County Food Pantry and Foundation for Appalachian, Ohio, announced the creation of the Joe Burrow Hunger Relief Fund that will serve 
that region. Uh, between the pantry's donation and a dollar-for-dollar match from the FAO, the fund helped uh, raise $700,000, and that's just a, as of yesterday afternoon, so pretty impressive. Uh, Burrow has been very vocal about wanting to help that region, the region that he came from, and uh, it was part of his Heisman speech, really moving part of his Heisman speech, so cool to see that he is already paying it forward. Number one overall pick. Pretty cool. We got to hear from Scott's service yesterday on how some of these inter-squad matchups will look like. We know the first one will take place today at 2.30 p.m., but uh, might be a little bit different. So uh, here was after Rick Riz asked that question. Uh, they'll, first of all, play an inter-squad every day, game every day from here on out. But here's more on what they'll look like. We're playing every day, Riz. We're going to play a game every day. Uh, okay. The same guys in there every day, obviously. Uh, but... Um, Again, the games will vary in length, uh, but we're going to play every day that we have going here. We'll, like I said, next Friday we're going to take a, another off day, but uh, um, we'll be playing every day, trying to get out of. I mean, there's got to get you got players to get some rhythm uh, in in games and at bats, um, handling different situations on the mound. Um, one of the things that it'll be interesting. I, Kevin Martinez filled me in. You know, we're going to broadcast or, or yeah. do some games on radio, whatnot, and. I'll certainly help you guys along, give you a heads up going into that day. Um, it would be a little abnormal in the fact that, you know, you may see um, Justice Sheffield out there tomorrow and, you know, go one, two, three in the first inning on 10 pitches, and we're going to stay stop. We need to get a few more pitches out of you, so he may get four or right. five outs in the inning. And then when that happens, we are going to set up situations at the end of each half inning. So I don't know quite how you're going to talk through that on the radio, but all of a sudden you're going to see a couple players run out from the dugout they're going to be standing on base, um, and you might have – we're going to work on our bunt defenses. We'll have a live bunter in there, and we will play it like a game. We'll run through that. As soon as that's done, then you're off the field, and the half inning is over. So um, good luck explaining that to the crowd listening. <laughs> but uh, Well, we have fun to, with it. Yeah, I'll try to give you a heads up every day of what we're working on, so it'll give you a little something to talk about on the radio as you get going through it. The skipper, a little bit more on what those games will look like. It was a little surprising. Oh, no, that's John. Wait for it. Where's Scott? Yeah, guys will have the typical, you know, uh, uh, the powder blue, light blue uh, spring training jerseys on. Um, I don't think uh, Ryan Styles at club. He's got a full set of unis for all 60 players built out. So uh, that's one thing we'll, we'll keep in mind. Uh, it's something got brought up the other day that we would like to mix it up a little bit. But uh, I, I don't think our equipment managers got all that uh, under under control yet with as many players as we have in here. So everybody will probably be dressed the same. The one thing you'll see a little bit different, I will give you a heads up, is uh, um, I just think trying to, you know, back off them. You know, we have a lot of coaches here, and a lot of guys were brought in because we are eventually going to split off. A group of guys will go to Tacoma. So we needed to bring a, a lot of coaches in to handle all that. But once the games start, you'll see a number of coaches um, not in the dugout, um, just from social distancing standpoint, we don't want that many people clustering in the dugout. There are specific spots that I, the manager, can only stand in the dugout. Um, there can only be so many coaches around me in the dugout. So uh, you'll see a lot of coaches sitting in the stands. I will be sitting in the stands uh, often during these games. Um, and the reason I'm doing that, too, is just try to create more opportunities for some of our younger coaches um, to get in there and, and uh, get a feel for things. So. It's going to look quite different in the dugout. There are specific seats players sit in. Um, I think we've done a really good job so far 
and um, following all the protocols, and we'll continue to do those during the games. We've got to practice them because that's what's going to happen in the regular season. So exciting. Remember, 2.30 p.m. today. Uh, Scott Service also had some thoughts on those new rules and starting the runner on second in extras, saying, yes, they would prefer to play the game uh, as they normally do, but that's just not the case this year. So there will be a lot of strategy that goes into it. Um, it's really going to emphasize the bunt game. It's also going to, according to service, be based a lot upon matchups. So uh, previous history, but also expected history of a particular batter versus a particular pitcher. Jeff Passan of ESPN commenting yesterday how players in general are adjusting to the new rule. As an athlete, you get so used to a particular way of life. And baseball players, maybe more than anybody are into routines and really like to follow those routines. And the players are all saying, this doesn't feel like baseball. This is weird not being near your teammates. This is weird socially distancing out on the field. But this is our new reality. And listen, if during the regular season, Garrett Cole does not like the feel of a ball, he's going to pick it up. He's going to chuck it to the side, and he's going to ask for a new one. He's got that luxury going forward. Does have that luxury. The Big Ten uh, with some big news. Well, actually, we'll get to that in just a second. We'll start with the NFL. They have banned jersey exchanges in 2020 as the league attempts to play with a lot of health and safety protocols set amid through the coronavirus pandemic. It was a set of protocols distributed to teams this week by the league and the NFL Players Association signed off on the policy, which states, quote, a key component of the NFL and NFLPA's COVID-19 protocols is limiting exposure risk to NFL players, coaches, club medical staffs and other club and league staff. All postgame interactions with less than six feet of separation are prohibited. Other highlights from the policy. Coaches and players who aren't likely to appear in the game are, quote, strongly encouraged but not required to wear masks on the sideline. Assistant coaches who work in the coach's booth must wear a mask as they walk to and from the locker room or field. Other people who have field access, whether that's broadcast partners or other NFL reps, they have to wear masks. A maximum of 184 people will be granted field access for a particular game, not counting players, coaches, and other staffers who receive bench access. Also on this set of protocols, players and coaches must submit to multiple temperature checks before games and cannot participate if they have a fever of more than 100.4 degrees. Arrangements have to be made. This one seems simple to ensure that there's no shared water or shared water bottles on the sideline. Players are required to spend the night before games at the team hotel, even if they are playing in their home stadium. So these will take effect for preseason and regular games, which as of now, the NFL is planning to have two preseason games for each team. The NFLPA, meanwhile, has endorsed a training camp with no preseason games. Rookies and select veterans can report to training camp as early as July 21st, with full teams eligible to report on July 28th. Jeremy Fowler of ESPN on what the NFL Players Union wants when it comes to preseason. The NFL Players Union has not even approved those protocols that you've just read off. And so, you know, the players don't really like those and they can laugh about them. But really, they've prioritized three objectives here. They want daily testing at training camp, which the league has not approved yet. 
They want no preseason games, which the league has not allowed yet. They want two games. And the players want an acclimation period of over a month so they can just get comfortable in that training camp environment and ramp up their conditioning. And so I'm told from a league source that they expect the two games to stand, but that there could be a concession on the way, whether it's the the daily testing. But this has really been a negotiation each week to try to figure out that sweet spot. They're in that process of that now. They could figure out the preseason games here in the next day or two, I'm told. The Big Ten yesterday with some big news in college football announced it will go to a conference-only season for all fall sports, including football. In a statement, the Big Ten said, we're facing uncertain and unprecedented times in the health, safety, and wellness of our student-athletes, coaches, game officials, and others associated with our sports programs and campuses remains our number one priority. They're hoping that by limiting the competition to just other Big Ten institutions, they'll eliminate some of that travel, uh, which could create higher risk. And uh, the conference will also have its greatest flexibility to adjust operations throughout the season if they need to. The Big Ten is the first of the Power Five conferences to make this type of a major change to its fall sports. We did hear from the Ivy League on Wednesday that ruled out playing all sports this fall, ruled them out completely. But as for the rest of the Power Five, they are still sort of grappling with what to do. The SEC is going to meet league officials, athletic directors early next week. They don't have plans to... Uh, make any type of these decisions yet for the fall schedule. According to the ESPN report, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby said that they've been advised to move ahead slowly and they're still planning for all available scenarios. The ACC has already said that it would delay all fall sports until at least September 1st. Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith said he would be in favor of playing the 10 conference football games. He supports it and that they have more flexibility, but he's also just very concerned about fall sports happening at all, admitting that. And that is the Ohio State Athletic Director. So one of the most powerful sports programs and powerful football programs in the country. Some of the non-conference football games that will no longer take place now that the Big Ten has decided to be strictly conference. Well, it includes that September 5th Michigan at Washington at UW matchup that a lot of Husky fans were looking forward to. Also, if keeping it here in the Pac-12, September 12th, Ohio State was scheduled to head to Oregon and play in that one. Uh, Another of the big ones, Wisconsin versus Notre Dame, and that was scheduled to take place at Lambeau Field in October. So all of those will be canceled. That's a wrap for the hot list and the entire Blitz at 6 Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. And remember, don't forget, set your clock, set your alarms, 2.30 p.m. today, live baseball right here on 710 ESPN Seattle, the Mariners' first intra-squad game. Danny and Gallant next.